And this passage, um, you know, just a shout out to my sisters in Christ this morning, because part of this passage is going to be talking about, uh, you know, an act of worship and also sacrifice of a woman that was noticed by Christ. And I think sometimes as women, and I'm just speaking to the sisters this morning, sometimes we feel like what we do goes unnoticed. And I love this passage because it's a reminder that Christ does know uh, what we do um, in acts of worship and sacrifice. So we're in Matthew 26. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 16. Would you all stand with me, please? Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, sorry, I don't have a stand this morning, so I got to do the finger flip this morning. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why is this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community's downtown campus, and I am so grateful uh, that you would join us on this Sunday morning. It is good to see you. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Lori, uh, for reading this morning's scripture uh, so well and with such kind of insight. And as you listen to Lori read, I'm sure you notice that our text today focuses on fancy perfumes or fine fragrances. And church, you should know this about me. I am an expert in fine fragrance. And it, uh, to be clear, it's not because I'm a purchaser of fine fragrances. I'm not dropping big money on cologne. Uh, rather, I am a free sampler of fine fragrances. And uh, let, me, let me explain. A few years ago, a very dear friend of mine taught me this little trick. And this, uh, you can take this home with you as well, that has become a habit for me. Whenever I'm headed to a fancy event, so imagine there's like a wedding coming up, right? So this friend told me, it's real quite simple. He said, you can walk into any Sephora store. Have you seen these stores like at the mall or at the plaza? He said, you can walk into any Sephora store and you can ask for a sample of any cologne on the shelf. 
And it sounded too good to be true. But before I knew it, there we were in a Sephora, and uh, a sales associate was making him a sample size bottle of Tom Ford's Noir et Noir, uh, which retails for $225 a bottle. And then she turns to me, the sales associate, and she said, what would you like to try? And so I pick a thing out of thing. She pulls the bottle off the shelf. She sprays it in a little tester. And actually, uh, I brought a tester tube to show you this morning. So this is from Sephora. It's a small tube. This is, inside this bag is Giorgio Armani's Code Profumo. So here, here it is. Uh, this retails for $110 a bottle at Macy's. But I have some right here in this tube uh, for free, uh, courtesy of Sephora's generosity. And so as you might be able to notice, I don't know if you can tell where you're sitting, there's like a good amount in here. So I think I've got my next few fancy events covered. Uh, I'm ready for any, any classy party. And why am I telling you this? Uh, why am I pulling sample perfume out of a bag? Why am I owning up to my own cheapness this morning? Uh, it's because this week, as I studied this scripture, I couldn't help but think of Sephora. I couldn't help but think of free samples. I couldn't help but think of the way that I savor and stretch the small amounts of cologne that I get for free. Because that's what I do, church. When I get a sample of Armani or Gucci or Dolce, whatever it is, even though it didn't cost me a thing, I don't use it freely. Kind of stingy with it. I'm, I'm thoughtful when I pull it out of the cabinet. I want to stretch it for as long as I can. I, even though I didn't pay one dime for it, I use it sparingly. Right? I'm stingy with free cologne that's merely worth a few hundred dollars a bottle. But this morning in Matthew 26, we encounter a woman who breaks open an entire jar of perfume and pours it on Jesus. And her perfume jar, it wasn't sample-sized, and it didn't cost her a few hundred dollars. It cost thousands, and she paid for it herself. See, I'm stingy with what's free, and she was generous with what was costly. Thousands of dollars in fine fragrance poured out and used up in a minute. That's the extravagant act of love at the center of this morning's text. And the gospel writer Matthew, he recorded this moment for us so that we could learn something. He wanted to, us to see two contrasting ways that we can respond to Jesus. Matthew, through his writing, he's inviting us to explore a contrast between the woman's seemingly foolish, selfish, reckless generosity and devotion and Judas's notorious act of selfishness. Matthew, he's inviting us into his narrative, and he's wanting us to examine our own hearts and place ourselves in the, in the text, and he's asking a question of us. His text begs a question. The question is simple. Are we more like this woman or more like Judas, right? Am I more like this woman or Judas? Are you more like this woman or like Judas? Do you love Jesus extravagantly and generously holding nothing back? Or do you try to exploit your connection with Jesus for personal profit and self-benefit? Are you so enamored with Jesus that you savor opportunities to show him your affection? Or do you treasure instead the value that you can milk out of your association with Jesus and his church? Are you more like this woman or are you more like Judas? That's the question each of us needs to answer this morning. And church, I'm praying that our study of Scripture together today might help us see the posture of our hearts more clearly so that we might respond to Jesus more appropriately. So if you're up for that kind of soul-searching, 
If you're willing to evaluate your affections and your habits through the lens that Matthew presents to us in Matthew 26, would you join me there now in Matthew 26, verse 1? It's on page 831 of our community Bibles, Matthew 26, verse 1. And the text says this, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, as you might remember, as we've been walking through Matthew verse by verse, for the past few weeks, we've been exploring a message that Jesus gives to his disciples. He's been giving them a final sermon, if you will. He's been telling them about the end of the world. And last week, we spent time listening to Jesus as he instructed his disciples to continue to care for the poor. Do you remember this? Jesus, last week, he told us, uh, whatever you do to the least of these brothers in my name, it's like you're doing it to me. That's what we heard last week. We said uh, that Jesus' followers love those the world ignores. That's where we've been. Well, every good sermon needs a big conclusion. And so Jesus wraps up this big teaching that he's been presenting to his disciples over the last couple chapters with this statement. And he says, hey, I'm going to put it bluntly, guys, two days from now, I'm going to die right? Jesus just tells it like it is. And sure enough, Matthew shows us in the text, Jesus predicted correctly because he says then, so at the same time that this is happening, the chief priests and the elders of the people, they gathered in the place of the high, in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So Jesus' days are numbered and he knows it. And as all this scheming and strategizing is taking place at the high priest, priest's palace, Jesus is with his disciples at the home of a leper. You see that in verse 6? Now, Jesus was at Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, and that seems appropriate, doesn't it? Because in his final days on earth, Jesus doesn't take out a, re a reservation at the extravagant restaurant in Jerusalem. He doesn't seek out some kind of five-star establishment for dining. Rather, he heads to the home of a man who is ceremonially unclean, and he chooses to dine there. In his very final days on earth, Jesus is a friend for those the culture rejects. It's fitting that that's where Jesus is. And while he's there at the table of Simon the leper, a woman approaches him, and she's carrying with her an alabaster flask of very expensive perfume. Uh, she had been to Sephora, and she actually bought something. And it was common in those days to wear perfume around your neck on sort of a necklace. It would hang there, because you've got to remember, these are the days before Old Spice or Secret uh, there's no deodorant that exists. There's ways of being clean, but still there'd be kind of a, a musk that most folks would have. And so wearing perfume, a jar of perfume around your neck in a necklace was one way to kind of cover your stench if you were going someplace nice. So it was common for people to carry perfume with them. That part of the woman's story, that, that's common, but it was uncommon what she does with her perfume. The text says that she took the jar and she poured it on Jesus as he reclined at the table. She took this jar of expensive perfume and she poured it out on Jesus. And as the scent filled up the room, I imagine that questions bubbled up as well. Those who saw this extravagant act, they had to wonder, uh, who is this woman and what is she doing? Why is she wasting this perfume? Where did she get the money to pay for it anyway? Did she spend her, her last money to purchase this? How could she be so foolish and wasteful? All that value used up in a minute, it's ridiculous. 
In fact, Matthew tells us it wasn't long before the disciples themselves spoke up and said in verse 8, why this waste? For this perfume, this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. And as they spoke those words, I'm sure they were remembering Jesus's very recent teaching that whatever you do for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you do for me. I mean, Jesus' disciples know better than anyone that Jesus was serious about his love for the poor. They'd seen him take notice of the marginalized and the weak and the needy on numerous occasions. They'd heard him teach that those who are neglected and, and abused, they're to receive special care and support from his followers. So I'm fairly certain that the disciples' frustration here, it's rooted in a place of sincerity. I don't think they're trying to be buzzkills or trying to be self-righteous. I, I believe they're deeply disturbed by what looks to them like some sort of ridiculous waste. I mean, actually, this reminds me of an incident last fall after the American Royal uh, Barbecue Contest here in Kansas City. Maybe you remember this. Uh, so the annual barbecue contest, the American Royal, which draws hundreds of people uh, to Kansas City to showcase kind of these signature barbecue flavors. So these, all these competitors come, and they bring their best barbecue, and judges are there, and you can buy tickets to the event. Well, the, the American Royal Association, they'd worked with various charitable organizations across the city to arrange donation of the meat that was there to be judged after the competition ended. And so the food was going to be used to serve some of the most needy people in Kansas City's community. And one particular organization was slated to receive 700 pounds of barbecue. So just to let you know the kind of quantity we're talking about, this is a lot of meat that comes in, and then we're going to donate the rest to various organizations across the city. So word spreads that this good food is coming, but then the health inspectors arrive. And they cited a few small regulations, and they stopped the meat from being delivered to the various organizations because the American Royal was not technically a permitted establishment. Well, you know, it's all rooted in language, but they said, no, you can't donate this meat. And even though just hours before this same meat had been fed to judges and to paying ticketed customers at the American Royal, it was thrown into a dumpster, seized by health officials, and here's the kicker that gets me every time, doused in bleach so that no one would be able to dive in after it. Now, naturally, there was a public outcry. And I think the kind of frustration that you likely feel bubbling up within you as you hear this story is similar to the frustration of the disciples. Because they know Jesus is the champion of the poor. I think this is why Matthew calls them indignant in verse 8. They've, they feel like they've witnessed an injustice. Jesus, the champion of the poor, covered in thousands of dollars of expensive perfume that could have been used to his mission. They, they just feel like he's uh, been, done something that's totally an affront to everything that he stands for. And so they're frustrated and they verbalize their frustration and they expect Jesus to join them. But that's not what happens. See, the disciples say indignantly, again in verse 9, they say, for, for this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor, but Jesus... Aware of what they're saying, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And what's that, Jesus? And, and then he goes on, he says, In pouring this ointment on this body, on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. 
See, Jesus, the champion of the poor, he's covered in fine perfume. And instead of siding with his disciples and rebuking the woman who poured it on him, he commends her. And this is an astounding turn of events. Jesus gladly receives her extravagant gesture, and the disciples are speechless. And one disciple in particular decides that he's had enough. Matthew says that not soon after Judas, one of the twelve, One of Jesus' closest followers, a core fan who'd been there for all the sermons, seen all the healings. He'd traveled with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. Judas, he left the dinner quietly. And the text says in verse 14, he went to the chief priests and he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he saw an opportunity to betray him. Judas witnessed an extravagant act of devotion to Jesus, and he left the house, and he sought out Jesus' enemies. And what gets me when I read this is that Judas settles for a payment of 30 pieces of silver from the religious leaders, uh, which is not a massive amount of money. He couldn't have even purchased the perfume that the woman had just poured on Jesus with it. History gives us no indication that Judas even negotiated for his price. Indeed, I I think the religious leaders probably would have paid a whole lot for Jesus, don't you? He's he's their arch nemesis, but Judas takes the offer and he sells out. And don't you want to know why? I mean, I I know I I do. Why, Why, Judas? Why did you do it? Was this all this talk about Jesus' death? Uh, Was it the fact that you're realizing this revolution isn't quite what you signed up for? Is it becoming increasingly apparent to you that it might be difficult for you when Jesus dies? I mean, why, Judas? And the, the correct answer is we don't know why for certain. The text never really says. Other gospel writers mention Judas' greed, and it's clear that Judas loves money, but I just don't think it could have been greed totally. Otherwise, Judas, I feel like, could have got a higher price. He's sitting on a gold mine with Jesus. 30 pieces of silver in today's money, I mean, scholars vary, but it's between $600 and $3,000, which is a good chunk of change, but could have gotten more. Something snapped in Judas when he saw this extravagant act of devotion, and we don't know exactly what it was, but there at that dinner, witnessing this woman's sincere love for Christ, something went off. And from that gathering, Judas committed himself to a path of betrayal. He decided he was going to leverage his proximity to Jesus for profit. He determined that he'd take the fact that he had some kind of connection with Jesus and he would use that to bring benefit for himself. He had no interest in giving freely to Jesus. He was only interested in milking what he could from Jesus and from that relationship. And this is the contrast Matthew wants us to see. Again, it's the vast difference between the woman and Judas, and it takes center stage in these opening verses of Matthew 26. Essentially, Matthew is trying to say to us, when it comes to Jesus, you can be like this woman or you can be like Judas. You can, you can anoint him with everything or you can sell him for nothing. Those are the two choices, Matthew says. You can give Jesus all you've got or you can use him for all he's worth. You can anoint him with everything or sell him for nothing. And though 2,000 years have passed since this event occurred, since that ancient evening when perfume was poured out and plans of betrayal were made, I believe those two options for responding to Jesus still stand for us today. 
We can give Jesus all we've got, or we can try to profit from our proximity to him. We can give freely or take selfishly from him. And in the moments that remain for us this morning, I'd like to take some time to detail some contemporary implications from this text. Specifically, I'd like to outline two common errors in Christian community that cause us to fall in love with things that are close to Jesus but are not Jesus. I want to outline two common errors in Christian communities that cause us to fall in love with things that are very, very close to Jesus but aren't quite Jesus himself. And then I'd like to name some ways that we could instead grow in our love for Jesus himself, becoming the kind of people who would love him with everything that we have. But first, we've got to start with these two common errors. So here it is, the first error, error number one. Uh, I think that we can often fall in love with the desires of Jesus and not Jesus. We can fall in love with the desires of Jesus and not Jesus. And what do I mean by that? Well, did you know that Jesus desires your flourishing? Did you know that Jesus wants what's best for you? Did you know that Jesus wants your life to be fulfilling and meaningful and filled with sustaining relationships? He wants you to make a contribution and feel like you have a purpose. Did you know that? I mean, just open the pages of your Bible. It's why we talk so much about flourishing here at Christ Community. It's from Genesis to Revelation. God has called his people to have work that has meaning, to be involved in communities, to do things that matter, to make contributions. I mean, it's all over the pages of this text. Jesus wants what's best for his people. God wants his people to flourish. A pastor I really respect put it this way. He says, if someone will die for you, they are for you right? Jesus is for you. He wants what's best for you. That, it's all over the pages of Scripture. It's clear. But the problem is, we hear that on Sunday mornings. We encounter that idea in our Bibles, and we quickly grasp onto that notion because it's great news, isn't it? That the God of the universe wants what's best for me. Oh, I love that, right? I'm all about that. And He does. And that is true. But here's what happens. We take that idea And we start to fall in love with that idea, and then we fill it with what we think is best for us. So we do stuff like this. We say, hey, I know Jesus wants what's best for me, and I know Jesus says that my best life will be when I'm generous, but I think just for this afternoon, you know what, I'd love this new outfit, because that's what would make me happy now. It's Friday afternoon. It's been a long week at work. Somehow I wound up here on the plaza, and I'm just going to take a pass on the generosity piece this week, right? And I'm going to have this little splurge. I'm going to treat myself because Jesus wants what's best for me. This is what's best for me. He would be really happy. I mean, that's that's how this logic works. Or we might say, well, I know Jesus wants what's best for me. And I know he says that I should repent and turn from things that are wrong. And yeah, I mean, Jesus even goes so far to say, hey, take that hand that causes you to sin. You should cut it off. But, But I know Jesus wants what's best for me. And so I should keep the hand. And I should also keep this little habit that I've been nurturing. I should keep this grudge that's been around forever. I should keep this bitterness while I'm at it. I'm going to keep saying bad things about her, and I'm going to keep thinking bad things about him. And I guess I might get around to working on those things one day, but not right now because my life's okay. You know, I feel more or less happy most days, and Jesus wants me to, happy be, wants me to be happy, right? So I must be doing fine. I'm doing just fine. Jesus, he wants me to be happy, and this is how it happens, church. We fall in love with an idea that's true. God desires our best. We fill it with other content. And then suddenly we're falling in love, but we're falling in love with the wrong things. 
We're falling in love with the desires of Jesus and not Jesus himself. We ignore Jesus entirely. We ignore what he taught. We ignore what he modeled. And so our love deepens, but it's love for Jesus' desires for us, not for Jesus himself. So over time that grows and then we become selfish. We become greedy and we start looking for opportunities to twist our faith into something that might bring us gain. That's how this works. And to be very clear, it doesn't just happen in churches out there. It happens in hearts right here. And this morning's test beckons us to ask the question, is that me? Am I in love with the desires that Jesus has for me more than Jesus himself? Have I fallen in love with the fact that Jesus wants what's best for me, but totally missed Jesus in the process? So that's the first common error made in Christian communities. And the second is this, we fall in love with the mission of Jesus, not Jesus, right? We fall in love with the mission of Jesus and not Jesus. And this error can be harder to identify, uh, but it is just as dangerous as the first. And hear how it works. Uh, this error starts with the right recognition that God cares about the world that he's made. And he wants us to care about it and about the people that he's put in it. And so we encounter Jesus' teaching about sacrifice and service, and we start to fall in love with what Jesus says about how we should engage our community, about how we should love our neighbors, about how we should be totally invested in the common good of our city. And make no mistake, Jesus is insistent that his followers should reach out to the marginalized and care for the oppressed. That's, it's a non-negotiable for following Jesus. But it's possible to love the mission of Jesus and not Jesus. And it happens all the time. You see, we start by loving Jesus, and then because of our love for Jesus, we fall in love with a cause. But then the cause becomes what's central, and the mission of Jesus starts to take priority over the person of Jesus. And, and over time, those that become consumed with doing the, all they can for the cause and recruiting all the people they can for the cause and giving all the, people, uh, all the money that they have to the cause, it, it becomes totally enrapturing. And they become so engaged and so entrenched in the cause and in the work of the cause that they quit resting, even though Jesus commands rest. And they quit praying for anything except the cause. And they skip church with increasing frequency to do work for the cause. And they get frustrated by those who aren't as committed to the cause. And their judgment grows. And their sense of being one who's enlightened or more awakened, it grows. And over time, their love deepens, but they're falling in love with the wrong thing. You're in love with the cause, not with Jesus. And so you can become manipulative and conniving and, and begin to leverage your association with Christ and with the church for the good of the cause. Now, hear me, church. We have many causes that we love at Christ Community. I mean, our commitment to Jesus has social implications, and we want to be a church that is all about that good work for our city. But Jesus didn't come to start the world's greatest relief organization. Even though his followers have been among some of the most generous and self-giving people in all of human history, but Jesus didn't come primarily to start a relief organization. He came to start a church, and he called that church his bride, and the bride's supposed to love the groom. And it is possible to fall in love with the mission of Jesus and miss Jesus entirely in the process. And Jesus wants to warn us about this. This is what he is trying to say in verse 11 of this morning's text when he says, For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. 
See, Jesus isn't saying, you're always going to have the poor with you, so don't even do anything to care about the poor. That's not it at all. He's saying, you're at a unique time in human history where I just have a few days left, and I'm sitting here in person, and you're right, care for the poor. And you know what? Honestly, apostles in this room, you're going to give your lives for the mission. You've got your whole lives ahead of you to be all about the mission. But right now, I'm here, and the mission's always going to be here, but don't miss this moment that you have for intimacy with me. I'm here in the flesh. Jesus is saying that I'm the treasure, I'm the value, I'm the one who's worth knowing. Sure, the cause is great, and you've got your whole life to give for it, but right now I'm here. Don't miss me for the good of the cause. But it's easy to do, church. And again, it doesn't just happen at churches out there. It happens in hearts right here. And so we've got to ask, do we love the mission of Jesus more than Jesus? I mean, it can happen so easily. Has it happened to us? Has it happened to me? Has it happened to you? So those are the two errors. We fall in love with the desires of Jesus, real desires for us to flourish. We fall in love with the desires of Jesus and not Jesus. We can fall in love with the mission of Jesus, a great mission, a mission I'm committed to, but we can fall in love with that mission and not Jesus. Those are the two errors. But then what are we supposed to do? If we've recognized one of these two errors in ourselves or part of these two errors in ourselves, how are we supposed to respond? What are we to do differently? How do we become the kinds of people that love Jesus with extravagance and devotion and not the kind of people that try to twist Jesus and use Jesus for what we can get from him? How does it happen? Well, first, I think it begins with a daily commitment to Jesus, a daily commitment to Jesus himself. You know, it was the famous French writer, Simone Weil, who defined love as focused attention. And what Wheel was getting at is the fact that love tends to grow and flourish where focused attention exists. Now, I know I've talked about her here in church before, uh, but I'm going to say it again. I love Kelly Clarkson, and I have spent hours and hours and hours of my life focusing my attention on Kelly's music because she is the greatest artist of our generation. Um, <laughs> And I would dare you to find a YouTube video of a televised performance I haven't seen. Uh, I've spent hours, I won't show you the counts in my iTunes of how many times I've listened to her music, but I say that to say this. I've given Kelly my focused attention for years, for as long as she's been around. It's no wonder that I'm such a passionate fan today. And in the same way, if we want our love for Jesus to grow, it has to begin in daily focused attention. First, we, we've got to spend focused time with him daily. Focused time with him daily. And if this is a habit that you've never embraced, or if this is a habit you used to be on the bandwagon for and then kind of fell off, I can't think of a better time to restart than during this season of Lent. We've produced a beautiful Lenten devotional that I've started using myself. It began this Wednesday, and it's gorgeously designed, and it's perfect length devotions and tied to Scripture. I mean, it's a wonderful resource. If you feel like, man, I need to get back on board with daily focused time with Jesus, now's the time. And the Lent devotionals are right over there in the welcome area. Take one with you this week. I needed one desperately in my own life. It focuses, again, our attention on Jesus and helps us grow in our affection for Him because we're being regular and consistent in hearing from Him and thinking about Him and pondering Him. It's so important. That's how love grows. And we've put resources into making this book, church, so let us help you fall in love with Jesus. If you need help with this first step of spending focused time with Jesus daily, grab one of those Lent devotionals before you leave. 
Right? That is how love grows, with regular, repeated, focused attention. That's one thing we can do to fall more in love with Jesus, to become more like the woman and less like Judas. The second thing we can do is remember Jesus' freely given love. We can remember His freely given love. I mean, answer this to me, church. Uh, is it easier to love someone who's abounding in love for you or someone who isn't? Is it easier to love someone who's totally all about you or someone who's not quite sure? I mean, the answers are obvious, isn't it? We all find it easier to love those who love us. And the fact is, no one loves you more than Jesus. His love is freely given. This is what compels Paul to write in Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we had no desire for Christ, he was giving his life for us. Jesus loves you. And what I, that is right. And what I've noticed in my own life is that the moments that I forget that in my life are the moments that I start to drift in my love for Jesus. I get all about other things, but when I forget Jesus's great love for me, oh my gosh, church, my faith weakens, my love for him weakens. And so if you want to grow in your love for Christ, if you want your devotion to him become more, to become more like the woman's in today's text, free and extravagant and generous, might I suggest that you spend some time reminding yourself of God's love for you? And here's one way I think this could look. Maybe you ask someone very close to you to tell you ways they've seen God's love at play in your life. Sometimes it can be hard for us to see it in our own lives, can it? But maybe you ask a good friend, hey, how have you seen God's love at work for me? How have you seen God's love over the long haul in my life? And then listen to what they have to say. Because I'm convinced that God loves us all, and sometimes the eyes of another can be sharper than our own, right? And so we need our community. Ask someone, how have you seen God's love at work in my life? And listen to what they have to say in response. I think that could be a profound act that causes your devotion to Jesus to grow, right? So we've got two tools so far. We can spend time with Him daily. We can remind ourselves of His love freely given. And then finally, church, this last one is tough, but... I'm going to say it. We need to learn to love with extravagance. We need to learn to love with extravagance. And what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus is blown away because this woman who greets him at the table goes above and beyond. She pours out her expensive perfume as a sign of love for him. Her love for Jesus, it, it is over the top. It's extravagant. And I think the fact is that many of us aren't used to loving others in this way. Now, to be very clear, I think that love ultimately, it's, a, it's built over time through small daily disciplines. That proves love more than anything else, right? But then love can grow or love can blossom even more with these gestures along the way. So we all can imagine this in certain relationships, right? Someone's never there and then they show up with a big gesture, not interested. But someone's always there and they show up with a big gesture, oh my goodness, blown away. And so what I'm saying is if we learn to love Jesus with extravagance, the daily discipline still has to be there, but we have got to get better about thinking of ways to show our above and beyond devotion to Jesus. I believe that that would help our love for Christ grow. But here's what's difficult. I don't know precisely what this looks like. I think it could be as different as the stories and skills in this room. The way that you might love Jesus extravagantly might be the different from the way I would. I don't know what this looks like, but I want to help us cultivate an, an imagination for what extravagant love could resemble. So I want to tell you a true story. Um, it's from 2010. On April 27, 2010, 13-year-old Eric Martin got a phone call. And it was Spider-Man on the other line asking Eric for some help. 
Uh, you see, Eric had a secret identity. He was Electron Boy, uh, a superhero that could fight the powers of darkness through light. And so Eric gets this call for help from Spider-Man, and he's told he should throw on his suit, that a car will be coming shortly to pick him up and bring him to a place of great danger. And so shortly a car does show up where Eric is. There's 20 police motorcycles escorting it, and they take him to the heart of downtown Seattle. And there, Eric uses his powers to defeat Dr. Dark. He's granted the key to the city of Seattle. He poses for the cameras before taking a ride in a limousine to greet all his adoring fans. And one reporter notes that the hero said, this is the best day of my life, right, as everyone's waving and cheering for Electron Man who saved the day. And then a year and a half later, Eric died. And the crowds that took part in his elaborate Make-A-Wish Foundation event gathered once more to commemorate a life that had ended too soon. And I imagine that someone heartless could look at that and say, what a waste. All that time, all that energy, those hours off from work, all those people shutting down I-90 for his motorcade to enter the city, all that work, and what does it matter now that he's gone? That could be one response, church, to the extravagant display of love. But I'm certain there are others, and hopefully us in this room with eyes of face, who can recognize that an extravagant expenditure of love and resources, even for a terminally ill child, is totally fitting because it tangibly demonstrates the value and worth of every human life. And here's what I know, church. We have been loved extravagantly by Jesus Christ. And that an extravagant display of love in response is entirely fitting and entirely appropriate. Christ has given his life for us. And there's nothing we could do in response to ever outmatch that, but nothing we could do in response is ever wasted. When done in gratitude and done in thankfulness, extravagance towards Jesus is always worth it. So may we become the kind of people that don't make the errors of loving Jesus' desires or mission more than we love Jesus. We can't do that. But may we also become the kind of folks that by spending time with him daily and by remembering his freely given love and by asking for his help to have a better imagination of how we could show him our extravagance and devotion, could we become the kinds of people that more resemble the woman in today's texts that are ready to love Jesus with extravagance, ready to give back freely what he's given us. Church, it's so simple. I thought about it with the cologne. I, I don't any longer want to be stingy with something I received freely. Right? May we be those kind of people that give love generously to God and to others. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we need your help to love well. This is a hard, hard task. Forgive us for falling in love with your desires over you. And forgive us for falling in love with your mission over you. Lord, we, uh, we recognize that you are the treasure, that the mission will always be here, but we have precious few opportunities to interact and commune with you deeply. Lord, help us to be folks that seize those opportunities, that have an imagination and look for ways to love you extravagantly. Lord, give us the discipline to spend time with you daily and also give us the acknowledgement of your love that's been freely given to us. Help us see it clearly if it's something that's hard for us to discern. Lord, we want to be characterized by our love for you. We want to become the kinds of people that are sweetly devoted wholly to you. But we need your help in that work, Lord. Would you empower us in that task? It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.